The following audio is from Park Church in Denver, Colorado. More information about Park Church is available online at parkchurchdenver.org. Exodus 25. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones, and stones for setting, for the ephod, and for the breast piece. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Technically, the scripture reading this morning was supposed to be seven chapters, uh, so we spared you uh, and read nine verses. Uh, we're talking this morning about the tabernacle and at the heart of this, of this story of these instructions that God gives about building the tabernacle is God's desire to dwell among his people. And the kind of remarkable thing that we try to pay attention to all of life, but particularly as we gather on Sundays, uh, is that God is with us right now. Um, he's with us, uh, which is stunning. That we as a people um, are his dwelling place, that he's here in his glory and, uh, and just to kind of like let that sink in, that God is right now walking among us, um, tending to us, um, working in us, speaking to us, transforming lives, freeing people from bondage, giving life and joy. Um, it's a beautiful reality that we can kind of glance past. And so we're going to take a moment and, and pray. Pray that God would awaken us to the reality of his presence and ultimately that we would reorient our lives around that reality. So would you join me as we speak to the God who is currently actually with us. Um, yeah, Father, we are, uh, we are grateful. I'm just hearing a siren go by and just reminded of the brokenness and the pain in this world. Um, we are grateful that you have intervened, um, that you've actually come and pursued uh, those of us who had turned from you, a world that had turn from you. You pursued us to restore us, to reconcile us to your presence. And yet, I just confess right now, um, and I imagine with a lot of um, friends in this room, um, I don't often pay attention to the reality of your presence. Um, that your presence is often um, significantly inconsequential in my life, in the way I live, in the way I think, in the way I relate, in the way I engage um, in this world. And so I'm praying, Holy Spirit, that you would do something spectacular today. And I pray this for every single person in this room, Holy Spirit, that you would today empower, awaken us to the reality of your presence. That this would not be merely a mental, a mental or a theological um, truth to think about, but that your manifest presence, your presence would be known and experienced, that we'd find love and joy, that you'd speak to us. Even just this image um, as we we're praying this morning of you tending to your church, walking among us, I pray that you would walk among us today. 
um, as it were, just to walk to every one of your children, to those who don't know you and speak life to them, to those who are wandering, that you'd grab their arm and with your kindness and your gentleness and your love, but also with your power and your authority to draw them back into um, relationship with you, God, that you would empower, prune, and refine and strengthen us where our love is waning, where our passion for you is faded, where the, the fire for your glory has become an ember, um, would you revive us again? And help us to know your presence and help us to orient our lives around it. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Uh, 13 years ago, I read this book uh, and it changed my life. It's called The Temple and the Church's Mission. It's by a guy named Greg Beal. Uh, and the fact that it changed my life means a couple things. One, it means I'm a total nerd. Uh, so it just means I'm a total nerd because uh, I love books like this. Uh, it's, uh, the subtitle is A Biblical Theology of the Dwelling Place of God. I was in, I was in seminary in Virginia. And, uh, and I read that book. And, uh, and it began to change the way I thought about what God was doing in the world. It changed the way I thought about the Bible and the coherence of the Bible, the continuity of the Bible, kind of like the fact that it's one storyline. And it's a storyline about God's desire to restore people to his presence, to actually restore his kingdom. At the heart of his kingdom is a God who actually is walking with us. That's, he's with us and we're with him. He's our God. We're his people. We know his love. We enjoy his rest. And all the things that come with his presence, like peace and rest and justice and righteousness and holiness and hope and, and joy that floods the world, that God is on a mission to restore the world to his presence. And so uh, after reading the book, kind of my mind and my wife, as we were thinking and praying about what we were doing, we ended up kind of reorienting our lives. We, uh, we moved to Chicago where I could study with a guy who wrote this book, uh, Greg Beal, and, uh, and spent a couple years thinking about the reality of God's desire, God's mission to dwell among a people, but also God's mission to spread his presence through communities of people, which changed the way I thought about church planting. Uh, why I kind of like began to reorient my life around planting churches because I saw it as God's spreading of his presence around the world, which was God's mission. And again, uh, all that means is, again, I'm like a nerdy theology guy, um, but it also, it also began to change the way I thought about everything about what's happening in cities and cultures. Uh, and what I began to see is even though my kind of mindset was changing and like kind of bigger contours of my life were getting framed, I still had very little idea what it meant to actually walk in the presence of God. So like big decisions started changing for me and my family and we started like thinking differently about our purpose in the world. But that kind of day-to-day -day fabric of life, I don't know that I understood and I think I'm just still honestly beginning to understand what it means to walk aware of God's presence. His actual presence, not just a theological presence or not just kind of a I'm going to say missiological presence, like, hey, this is what he's doing in the world. It's big and it's huge and that's exciting and it should change our lives. But to actually emotionally, psychologically, relationally, like be attentive to the presence of God in ordinary life. And that's something that God has been stirring in me for a long time. So kind of my heart uh, and my passion around this sermon today, which is all about God's desire to dwell among us, um, is significant because I think there's probably nothing more significant for your life than your understanding of God's presence with you. 
that God is with us. And the heart of the passage we're looking at today, this uh, passage uh, about the instructions for building the tabernacle in Exodus, is about God's desire to dwell among his people. It's ultimately about God's desire for you to know his presence and to orient your life around it. That you would know his presence and that you would orient your life around the reality of his presence. That's our heart today. That's where we're aiming. Uh, We have a lot to do, and I care so much about this, and I'm, like, going to trim and cut probably as we go because I, like, cut this sermon, like, six times, and it's never enough. Um, And so uh, we're going to hone in on this in in three kind of different movements. This is the way I tend to think about kind of Bible interpretation. What does it say? What does it mean? And why does it matter, right? Like, those are the simplest kind of, like, crude framework of Bible interpretation. What is it actually saying? What does that mean? And why does that matter? How should that be shaping the way I think and live and relate to God and to others in this world? And so um, the kind of what does it say movement um, in this, at the core of this message is seven chapters, seven chapters starting in, um, in Exodus 25, um, going all the way to the end of Exodus 31 or halfway through Exodus 31 are seven chapters about God giving instructions for how to build a tabernacle, which is essentially a huge tent. And you're like, man, I bought from Sam's that tent that you just kind of like pop it up, open it, just like pops up, and then you go in. You know what I'm talking about, those tents now? They just kind of open it up, and they, you don't even have to attach poles. You just like do something, and it pops up. It's not that. It's seven chapters of how to construct and how to move and how to carry and how to walk with this massive tabernacle and a courtyard that was like a portable temple. And so seven chapters. You think like, this is all that God has revealed to us um, about himself. The God of the universe who made everything. He revealed this much to himself. Seven chapters about instructions on how to build a tent. Okay? Interestingly, by the time you get to Exodus 35, there's going to be five more chapters about them following those instructions and building the tent. Nearly verbatim. Nearly verbatim. Five more chapters about them. All right, we got the instructions and now we're obeying like step one. It's like first it's an Ikea manual and then it's like uh, kind of walking people through following the instructions in the Ikea manual. I mean, that's basically like a huge chunk of Exodus. Like why? Um, Why would God give so much space to this instructions, these blueprints and the actual construction of, of a tent? And it's because God wants to dwell among us. Um, God wanted to dwell among his people. And so what I want to do this morning, and the kind of what does it say, I'm going to kind of give a big overview of what they were building. And we're going to talk about what that means, right? We're going to actually back up and say, well, what's the purpose of, of this tabernacle? What does it mean? And I think its ramifications for our life are, are radical, honestly. Uh, from my own family processing this this week, it's like this is this means something for us and the way we think about our life and the way we think about our week and the way we think about our rhythms, the way we think about kind of what kind of holds the center, this kind of gravitational pull at the center of our family. What is that? And I think this uh, will mean something to you too or praying that the Spirit would, would work in your heart to speak through you. So here's, here's what's happening. Now, the people of Israel have just been rescued from Egypt and God rescued them, not just to free them from slavery, this kind of inescapable burden that was crushing them and destroying them, a burden that actually every human throughout history has known. We've lived our lives trying to construct meaning and life on our own and it's a burden that weighs on you and weighs on you and weighs on you and takes an increasing toll on your life, suppressing you and oppressing you constantly and God has rescued people from that burden, not merely to kind of rid them of the burden but to bring them out 
out to worship him, that they would be his people, that he would walk among them to be their God, that they would be his, and he'd restore and reconcile his relationship, this covenant relationship with his people, that he wants to be in relationship with you. And so he rescues us out of that burden that crushes and brings us into his presence. And so with Israel, he brings them out into the wilderness and he's beginning to kind of construct for them a way to approach his presence. A way for a sinful and broken people who had rejected his reign, who had turned from his love, a way for them to approach his presence. And the way that happened culturally throughout the history of the world was through temple systems. Um, Every culture, every pagan culture of those days had some version of temple systems, and we have our own version of temple systems, even in a secularized world. We'll talk about that. But he was constructing for them a way that they could understand about what it meant to draw near to his presence in a way that would actually represent and reflect a picture of what he was ultimately going to do through Jesus Christ. And so he gives them these instructions, not just for a temple, but for a portable temple, which is why it's a tent. It's not building a house. That's going to happen later in the story of God. There's going to actually be a a kind of brick and mortar temple that's built, a kind of commissioned by David, King David, several hundred years later, and then built by his son Solomon. Um, But before this, they're in the wilderness and they're moving along. So they're constructing a portable temple, which is called a tabernacle, so a, a tent. And it's a place where God's going to meet with his people. And so he gives these instructions uh, about the kind of diameter or the kind of dimensions of these different spaces and then the furnishings or like the furniture that's in them. And he gives kind of instructions on what the materials to be made out of, what's to be kind of graven and kind of sewn into and embroidered into different materials and how it's all supposed to be crafted. So I'm going to try and give a a representation of it. Um, Kind of the tabernacle itself, the tent itself is roughly the size of like one of these sections, Okay. One of these sections of kind of seats right here in the middle of this area of the sanctuary. So about 15 feet wide and about 45 feet uh, long. Okay, so that was kind of like the tabernacle, the tent. But kind of surrounding the tabernacle uh, was a courtyard. A courtyard, and it would just have a curtain. It was kind of like an open-air courtyard, nice and breezy in the wilderness. And it was just a curtain about seven and a half feet tall that would just go all the way around. And the whole kind of courtyard was about 150 feet long. 150 feet long, so you're thinking like a half of a football field long, and about 75 feet wide. So when you're watching the Broncos today at 225, which means you're all here this morning, great to see you. Um, (laughs) At 225, when you're watching the Broncos play, just imagine like half of that football field, that's like the size of the courtyard. And in the middle of that, or kind of like towards one side of it, is the tabernacle itself, a tent that's, that's covered. Okay, so 150 feet long, uh, 75 feet wide. And inside this courtyard, there were a few different um, kind of uh, furnishings and uh, kind of instruments or implements for sacrifice. There was um, what's called the bronze altar inside the tabernacle. And these are, this is, I'm kind of giving you a summary. This is all in these kind of six chapters that are um, from right now, chapter 25, verse 1, into the halfway through chapter 31, okay? Um, it's describing this. But if you read through it, you get lost in the details, the numbers, and the cubits, and the materials, and it just feels like a blur. And so I'm just going to summarize it for you. So inside this tabernacle, inside the courtyard, I mean, uh, are two, two things. There's a bronze altar and a bronze basin. The bronze basin was the place where they do ritual cleansing. And so priests could come into the courtyard and they would actually offer their sacrifices at the bronze altar, burnt offerings that would go up to God. We'll talk more about those in two weeks. 
and they would also do ritual cleansings or they would actually wash themselves um, as the kind of like people that were gonna represent God to the people. They needed to be cleansed. They weren't holy and pure in themselves. They had impurity in their hearts. They had impurity from the way they had lived in this world and they needed to be cleansed and washed and they needed to make sacrifices. And all of these kind of like experiences were so that the people of God who had rebelled against his reign, turned from his love, could actually be purified to draw near to the holy, holy, holy presence of God. And so those two things, the bronze basin for ritual washing, the bronze altar for ritual sacrifices, burnt offerings, we'll talk about those in two weeks, those are in the courtyard. And then there is this, this tabernacle. And the tabernacle was divided into two rooms. And so it was about 15 feet high, and again, 45 feet long, 15 feet wide. And the first 30 feet, if they were to walk in through the curtains, the first 30 feet of that, so 30 by 15, was this kind of um, holy place. And inside the holy place, there were a few different, um, again, a few different furnishings. There was a golden lampstand, which was this menorah, these seven candles, this golden lampstand made out of pure gold, one solid piece of gold. And it had these um, kind of candles or these lamps, seven lamps that represented God as a light to the world, but also was representative, even as description of the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. It's like this idea of like, this is the life-giving presence of God that's giving life to the world, that's a light in the world. So there's the lampstand. Also, there was a, um, an altar of incense in the holy place. And this altar of incense would be where different kind of like um, incense were burned and they had different meanings. I'm not gonna get into all the details there because I'm gonna run out of time. And then the last thing was a table of showbread. And a table of showbread uh, was, a, was a table about this high, about this wide, and it would have 12 kind of flat loaves of bread on it. These were the bread of the presence of God. It represented the 12 tribes of Israel. And these kind of 12 um, loaves of presence would represent God's provision for his people, his provision for his people in the midst of the wilderness, and his kind of sufficiency for his people. So you had this place where incense would be burned. You had this golden lampstand that would stay lit all the time. Every time the temple was set up, they would light those lamps, and those lamps would stay lit, and the the priests would come into the holy place, and they would keep those lamps lit all the time, tending to the wicks, tending to it. So when you get to the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation, Jesus is portrayed as this priest that's tending to the churches as his lamps. He's like kind of pruning the wick and trimming it and making sure there's oil in the lamp to make sure the churches stay lit to reflect his glory, his life-giving glory in the world. Is what God's doing in the world. It's a beautiful picture. And so the priest would do kind of like different sacrifices and different things inside of the holy place. And then there would be another curtain. And this curtain would be beautiful as all these different um, fabrics, these kind of different colors sewn into it. And on the curtain, there would be a picture of two cherubim, which are these spiritual beings, not just like um, angels, you know, kind of like floating down, uh, kind of like in this like weird robes and kind of halos over their head. They're like really scary creatures. It's described in different ways, but... These creatures were representative of guardians of God's presence. And so if you remember in Genesis, uh, in Genesis 1 and 2, after Adam and Eve are expelled from the Garden of Eden, two cherubim come to guard the entry to Eden, that humanity can't come back into the garden because of their rebellion. And so these cherubim would be kind of imprinted, embroidered on these curtains. And, uh, and a priest, a high priest, one time a year on the Day of Atonement could go through those curtains and come into the holy of holies, or the most holy place. It was a perfect cube in dimensions, 15 feet wide, 15 feet deep, 15 feet high. And this is the place where the Ark of the Covenant was. It was the only thing in there was the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, you know, the one on um, you know, Indiana Jones, just like that. Um, it's exactly like that. Watch that movie, you'll learn everything you need to know about Exodus. Um, super accurate. 
Um, great movie. Uh, so they would go into the Holy of Holies, and the Ark of the Covenant was there. And the Ark of the Covenant, Ark just means box. It's just Ark sounds cooler and more biblical. Um, but it's a box. It was a box that was the base was constructed out of wood, plated in gold. And inside that box was at least uh, the two copies of the covenant or the tablets of the covenant. And so the Ten Commandments, um, it's not kind of like five of them on one, five on the other. It's two copies, one copy for the people and one copy for the God. And that's the way the treaties worked is that God's saying, I'm responsible for all of this. And inside this ark, and there would be the, the kind of two tablets of stone. Eventually also Aaron had a staff that was placed in there. There are a couple other things placed inside the Ark of the Covenant, and the Ark of the Covenant was sealed by a lid that was called the mercy seat, or kind of a cover, or the atonement cover. And there would actually be blood sprinkled on that mercy seat on behalf of the people on the Day of Atonement once a year. So once a year, a high priest, after all these ritual cleansings, would come into the Holy of Holies, and they would sprinkle blood, make atonement over the sanctuary. Is that because God needed to be atoned for? No. Atonement is about purification. It's actually purifying a space so that the holy presence of God could come in. That's what the people needed blood atoning for them, not just to kind of like wipe away sin, but it was about purifying a people for the presence of God. And so the ark would be kind of sprinkled clean or sprinkled with this blood. And, uh, and above the mercy seat, or the, you could call it the atonement cover, were these two golden statues of cherubim with their wings extended and touching each other, and, and they kind of stay over it. And again, the idea is guardians of the presence of God. And it was known throughout the history of the Bible that this is the place where God would meet with his people. The glory of God would come down. That Actually, the mercy seat itself was seen as like the footstool of the heavenly throne room of God, that God uh, abides in the heavens in his holy presence. But this is the place where heaven and earth meet. This is the place where the holy, holy, holy presence of God comes to touch a very kind of like impure world. And in this place is this hot spot of God's glory where people with all of these barriers and all of these ritual cleansings were, were kind of able to, in this very mediated, very limited way, draw near to the presence of God. And this is what God gives Seven chapters about how to build. I don't know if you can picture it. You can look at kind of images and study Bibles. You can look at images online. Again, this courtyard, inside the courtyard, a tent. The tent has two rooms. First one, the holy place. The second one, the holy of holies, the most holy place. And this whole system, which feels kind of foreign to us and maybe archaic, is something that had immense value for the people of Israel. It was the centerpiece of their life as the people of God. And when they would travel, they would travel with several tribes, half of the tribes of Israel, in front of this kind of like, uh, just imagine how much, I mean, it's like wooden posts covered in gold and tons of curtains. And they would kind of, the priests would carry these things uh, on their journey through 40 years to the wilderness, half the tribes in front, half the tribes behind. And when they got to a place to rest, a pillar of fire that was God's presence would stop and they'd say, okay, God wants us to stop here. And they would stop and they would set up the tent and they'd set it up in particular ways. And then the people would camp all around it with different tribes on different sides, all of this laid out in numbers. You can kind of see the layout of the tribes. The whole point is the presence of God is the orienting center of their life as a people. The presence of God was supposed to be the orienting center of the life of their people. 
And they were required to do a lot of things. There was a lot of activity around orienting their life as a people around his presence. His presence was gracious. His presence wasn't deserved or earned. It was gracious. He was pursuing them and intervening. And yet to orient their life around his presence required deliberate action. Specific action that God had outlined for them. And this presence was for them a way to guide them, to guard them, protect them, provide for them, to kind of lead them in their mission as a people. That's what's happening in this passage. And so the question is, what does it all mean? What does it mean? So what it's saying, what does it mean? It means that God wants to dwell among us. And it means that he wants us to orient our lives around his presence. God wants to dwell among us. God wants you to know His presence. He wants you to know his presence, not know about, but to experience the reality of his presence, which will require you, if they had this tent and they carried it around, they're like, we have the presence of God, we have the Ark of the Covenant, and we like carried it around. We're gonna stop here, we're gonna set it, and we're gonna like go out and explore and just like leave the presence of God over there in this kind of like packaged like thing. It's like there, God like wants to dwell with them, but they've left it out. They've actually allowed the presence of God to kind of be moved to the margins of their community and they would orient their lives around something different, trying to kind of make their own way and provide for themselves and protect them. We need to, first thing, we need to build fortifications. We need to find food and we need to do all these other things. He's gonna first thing, set up my tabernacle. I am the source of your provision. I am the source of your protection. I am the source of your joy. I am the source of your life. First thing at the center, put my presence there. This image of my manifest presence right in the middle of your life as a people. Right in the middle of your life as a people. It's God's desire for you to know his presence and to orient your life around his presence. And so what's interesting to me on the kind of broader scale of what's happening in the Bible, this is not just something that's kind of like, kind of this little handful of chapters in the middle of Exodus. This is the story of the Bible. So many of the images um, that are happening in this passage are images and kind of in the instructions for the temple are images that are reflective of the Garden of Eden. Uh, We already talked about things like the golden lampstand, which is this image of the tree of life. The images that are embroidered on the curtains and the colors embroidered on the curtains, there were these flowering images. It was like this kind of um, Edenic kind of arboreal paradise is a, is a phrase um, that I said out loud. Uh, this kind of like garden feel to all of the images. And even the existence of the cherubim, which were showing to the people of Israel, this is about re, kind of like restoring the presence of God with his people. And for humanity, if you go back to the Garden of Eden, the Garden of Eden is, is portrayed as a temple. Even the dimensions of the Garden of Eden, the, the work that Adam and Eve are called to do, are the same work that priests are called to do, to work it and to keep it. It's kind of like work in this temple. The Garden of Eden was seen as a temple where God is dwelling with his people as a source of life. He's at the center of their life to give them life, to give them joy, to give them love, to give them peace, to give them all the things that every human being longs for. The life that humanity longs for is found when we center our life on the presence of God. And humanity turned from the presence of God and sought to forge their own way and are consequently exiled from his presence, exiled from the garden temple. And throughout the rest of history, humanity has been trying to find a way to life apart from the garden, outside the temple. So we construct our own temples, and it's happened. The people of Israel are going to go into a land of Canaan that have temple systems all around them. They knew temple systems. 
But these temple systems were destroying lives. There are ways that people would try to find life and meaning that would require sacrifice. They'd sacrifice to these gods and their whole society was built around systems that could give them life, give them fertility, give them fruitfulness in their, in their harvest, give them kind of peace, give them security, and they would make sacrifices to protect against war, and they'd make sacrifices to actually provide for themselves, and they'd make sacrifices to, to give them guidance, and they'd make sacrifices to forgive themselves for, for things they had done. And we think like, oh, thank God we've moved past all those pagan systems. We have not. We have not. You are making sacrifices every single day around a temple system. And the temple system has various kind of components to it, but there are very irreligious, secular temple systems. And there are very religious, churchy, Christian-y temple systems that are not God's presence. You can actually build your life in the kind of like secular way of progress where you're just constantly trying to enhance your lifestyle. And I, I think this is, Mark Sayers talks a ton about this in Reappearing Church. I'm going to keep quoting Reappearing Church until... Until like finally we're like, we're going to do a Bible study through reappearing church. At some point that's probably going to happen. Um, but he talks about progress without the presence of God. That we're trying to make progress in our life without the presence of God. That we're trying to construct life and meaning and joy. And we're sacrificing our time and our energy and our emotional health and our finances and our, and our all of these. That we're sacrificing these things in the pursuit of more and more and more. Like every false temple system, like every temple system throughout history, the gods ask more and more and more of you and give less and less and less. Big promises. This can give you life. New gadgets can give you life. New, more, better, right? Uh, the next home, that'll be it. Just more, better furniture in your home, th that'll be it. Just a little more kind of like active social life, more friendship, right? The next restaurant, the next club, the next relationship, the next sexual kind of like pursuit of your life, that'll, that'll, that'll be it. The next stage of family, the next stage in your career, the next kind of recreational outing, the next travel kind of vacation trip, the next, the next more and more and more, and you like find yourself just crushed more and more and more where it's delivering less and less and less until you find despair and depression and anxiety and shame and regret. It's crushing. These temple systems are crushing us. And God has said, like, you're not orienting your life around my presence. So the question I want to ask you is, what's the orienting center of your life right now? Like, what are you orienting your life around right now? Well, what's kind of like governing the decisions you're making and the rhythms of your week, the rhythms of your day? It's interesting. Uh, after the people of Israel are separated from the presence of God, um, or after um, Adam and Eve are separated from the presence of God, and you have this kind of second image of this temple that's being built. But even after the temple that's built by David and Solomon, the people of God, again, rejected God's reign over them, compromised and found, tried to find life in other ways. And they were yet again exiled from the promised land. And they went into Babylon. And what's interesting about their experience in Babylon is they learned what does it mean to orient our life when there's no temple present. And that's where different things, like uh, there's um, one guy, Abraham Joshua Heschel, who wrote a book called The Sabbath, that talks about the architecture of time. That they would create, if there wasn't sacred space, like a physical sacred space to draw near to the presence of God, they would create sacred space of time. And they'd create these rhythms. So Sabbath became this new sacred space. It wasn't a temple to draw near to, but it was a space to attend to the presence of God. 
And they would have space in their life, create temporal space in their life to pay attention to the presence of God, to attend to his presence and draw near to him. And that became a massive theme throughout Judaism. And it's a theme that continues to kind of like move throughout church history when you understand that we're not as a people called to draw near to a physicality, a physical space, but to actually create space to pay attention to the presence of God in our lives. It requires deliberate action. And so the people have been exiled from from Eden, or exiled from um, Israel, exiled from Canaan or the Promised Land. They were in Babylon. Eventually, they made their way back into um, Israel, and they attempted to rebuild the temple, and they did. They, they rebuilt the temple. This is called the Second Temple Period. If you ever hear, if you're reading a, a dorky theology book, and they talk about Second Temple Judaism, this time, when they had rebuilt the temple after it had been destroyed by the Babylonians, they rebuilt it, and everybody who had seen the temple previously was just like, this is a cruddy temple. You know, like, it just like, just like it was a big wah wah. It's like, let's rebuild the temple. And they did. And they're like, ha ha, man, this totally sucks uh, as a temple. Um, and they felt that. And it made them like longing for the restored presence of God. And then all of a sudden, all of a sudden, John 1 says that the word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. The Greek word for dwelt among us is tabernacled among us. That the voice of God, the presence of God took on human flesh and tabernacled among us. Not in a physical building, but in the person of Jesus, walking around. He's like, here is the presence of God, right here in your midst, fully God, fully man. If you want to draw near to God, draw near to Jesus. If you want to experience the love of God, come to experience the love of Jesus. If you want to see the character of God, come and see the glory of Jesus. If you want to experience God, it's through Jesus. He is the manifest presence of God. And this Jesus who tabernacled among us isn't merely, isn't merely the temple itself, but he's the priest and he is the sacrifice. Everything that's happening, he is the mediator between God and humanity and he is the lamb who shed his blood to make people pure so the presence of God could come in us. And so when Jesus died on the cross, it's not a surprise that what happened when it, he died on the cross, there's a massive earthquake and it says the temple or the curtain in the temple was ripped in two was ripped into giving access, not just for people to draw near to the temple, but for the glory of God to flood out of geographical space and to come to every single person who's cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. That the presence of God is not limited to a geographical space, but is coming and invading the life of everyone who has been atoned for by the blood of the Lamb. That when Jesus died on the cross, his blood is not merely forgiving us of our sins. His blood is cleansing us, making us sacred space so that the holy, holy presence of God and the person of the Holy Spirit could make his home in us. And so that's why all these New Testament authors will say, you are the temple. We are being built together like living stones into a dwelling place for God. That the glory of God, the love of God, the, the joy of his presence would come in us and flood us and that we'd experience this incredible thing. So when you think about stepping way back and say, okay, that, what it said was all these kind of barriers mediating the presence of God and what it means is God wants to dwell among us. What does that, what does that matter for me? Do you understand that like you have access to the holy, holy, holy presence of God right now. And we treat it as a marginal, inconsequential reality. And this is what like, was breaking me this week. You just read these chapters of what it took for them to draw near to the, the throne of God. And I'm like, and he's here. And I don't pay attention. 
And I don't stop and, and say, God, what do, you, what do you want to speak to me today? And, and how do you want to lead me today? And what, what do you want to remind me of today? And, and thanking him for his grace and his provision and his kindness and his leadership and his forgiveness and his mercy. And praying that he would kind of work in me and in my family and in our church to make us a people that would spread his presence to cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. Why does this matter for us? Because God wants us to enjoy his presence now. But he also wants to be agents of his presence, that we would spread his presence in the world. There's this quote, I'm going to close with this quote by Dallas Willard. Neil read this a few weeks ago in August. We're talking about practices in our life. This is Dallas Willard, who's a phenomenal Christian thinker who passed away a few years back. He says, the first and most basic thing we can and must do is to keep God before our minds. David knew this secret and wrote, I have set the Lord continually before me because he's at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. Willard says, this is the fundamental secret of caring for our souls. Our part and thus practicing the presence of God is to direct and redirect our minds constantly to him. In the early time of our practicing, we may well be challenged by our burdensome habits of dwelling on things less than God. Like we have habits of turning away from God to like trivial, idiotic things. We have habits of doing that. But these are habits, not the law of gravity, and they can be broken. A new grace-filled habit will replace the former ones as we take intentional steps toward keeping God before us. Soon our minds will return to God as the needle of a compass constantly returns to the north. If God is the great longing of our souls, he will become the pole star of our inward beings. And so my question for us is what can we begin to do to reorient our life around his presence? What can you begin to do to reorient your life around his presence? And we're going to take some time to actually pray about that. But I want to give an idea for you. It's like helpful for me. I'm, I'm really bad at this. This is a battle for me every day. Most days I like end the day, not with like shame, but this sense of like, I want more. I want more of God. I want to orient my life more around him. But this habit of saying, finding two, maybe three times a day to create five or ten minutes, if you've never done it, five or ten minutes to slow down, still your heart. God, you are here. God, you are here. There are tons of devotionals and things like this. There's a devotional by a guy named Pete Scazzaro uh, called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality Day by Day, which walks through kind of basic framework of, a, of an old school method of slowing down before the presence of God, letting him speak to us through his word, responding to him in prayer, uh, and then moving out attentive of his presence. But what does it mean to create one or two times a day? You can do it on your way to work. You can do it right when you wake up, which I think is valuable. You can do it at lunchtime. You can do it when you start getting sleepy at the end of like three o'clock. You're like hitting that lull. And you're like, oh, let that be. That happens every day for everybody else, right? You know, um, let that be the cue. God, you're here. You're here. It can be at the end of the day, examining your day. Like, God, where were you in the day? What can I give thanks for? What, what do I need to turn from? What will this mean about my day tomorrow? But creating two or three spaces in the day, short amount of space to attend to the presence of God and watch him fill you with joy, with freedom, watch him begin to break chains in your life, reorienting the habits and giving fresh life to our weary souls. Let's pray.
God, we um, need you right now, um, even as we still our hearts before you. And we're praying that you would walk among us. That you would walk among us right now. Um, we're praying, Jesus, that you would speak into our hearts. Maybe where there are areas, maybe convicting us. What are we, what are we centering our life on? Friend, I encourage you to ask God right now, God, what am I centering my life on? And let him, maybe something just comes to mind immediately. Say, I don't want to do that. God, will you forgive me? And would you help me take steps to center my life around you, your presence? Would you break the chains that are inhibiting that presence? Jesus, even now, um, tend to our hearts.